Hello, hello. Welcome in for another episode of Dig City, a Purdue volleyball podcast. I want to wish everyone a happy Valentine's Day. Here we are in the middle of February. I'm Daniel Gilman alongside the head coach for Purdue, the four and four 11th ranked Boilermakers as we stand here. It's Dave Shondell and coach, how's everything going with you coming back from Ann Arbor with a pair of victories? Well, we're feeling optimistic about our team and, and through what's happened so far, our schedule has been the toughest of anybody else in the league, thus the four and four slate. We would rather be, um, you know, a better percentage than that, but we've played, I think, the two best teams in the league and uh, competed really well against one of them and uh, have also played a really good Michigan team at their place and, and got two wins up there. And I think there's some momentum. I think there's a feeling within our team that, that we can be pretty special now that we have everybody back and um, have the full complement of players. Um, so I, I feel like we're moving in the right direction. Well, we got a few big headlines here in this Dig City episode. The first one is the announcement that the Big Ten has honored Haley Bush and Taylor Trammell, Bush named setter of the week after an absolute knockout performance. Didn't really um, make too many mistakes at Michigan, but I'm sure I'll let you uh, dissect that. But 90 assists, had a seven kill performance on Sunday and picked up her 3000th career assist. That's, uh, that's the 11th Boilermaker coach in program history to reach that mark. She's going to creep into the top 10 in, you know, probably this upcoming weekend against Northwestern, but you've spoken so much about sugar, about the, the red shirt junior from union Kentucky. Is there anything that you could think of that you haven't said 50,000 times on camera, on microphone that really adds into what this setter brings to your team? Yeah, she's growing. Um, she's making progress. And I think the fact that she, I think had seven kills in that match against Michigan uh, with zero errors on maybe 13 attempts shows that she's listening because we've been, you know, really trying to encourage her to be more offensive with, with her skill set, not just uh, deliver the ball to other people, which is, which is a great asset to have as a setter, but there's easy ways that you can score points from the setting position. And I thought that, you know, she responded well to that. Um, the, the thing I'm most impressed with her right now is she's kind of coming out of her shell. She's such a great competitor that sometimes she just puts everything else aside and just competes. And if you're going to be a setter on a team that's going to have great success, you have to lead in some other ways besides just by example. And, and she's starting to tackle those things and doing a nice, doing a nice job. Well, those that listened to the, the radio calls from this past weekend, it was funny because after Michigan took the second set on Sunday, I was calling in that intermission report to get more dumps from Haley, really begging Bush to, to get a little bit more offensive. And in the first five points of the third set, I think she had two or three swings and was successful on all of those. The connection that Haley is starting to form with Taylor Trammell, with Maddie Chin, two of the younger players on the team. And we could talk a little bit about the defensive player of the week in the conference, Trammell now. What do you think brings, you know, to that success? Is, is it more of, you know, not having a season in the fall and being able to work more with Chin and, you know, being able to, I guess, start up chemistry with Taylor? Yeah, no doubt that those two players benefited greatly by having four additional months of strength training and uh, technical training and developing confidence in their game. Uh, certainly, we had Trammell, who was a long way from where she needed to be when she, when she arrived, as all freshmen are. And, you know, we, we started to really, she responds very well to uh, coaching. 
And, uh, you know, we have to kind of remind her of, of what, what our expectations are for her. But once you tell her, she responds in a great way. So Taylor, the, the benefit of, of the success she's had is she's drawing attention. JL Johnson's drawing attention. So teams aren't going to be able to bird dog Cleveland and Newton uh, when you have players like Trammell, JL Johnson, and Maddie Chin, who are all hitting close to 400% on the young season. And so I think that's great. And then you have, you know, Bush, as we talked about, slipping some balls over the net as well. I think offensively, this team is going to be very difficult to defend as we move forward. And a lot of that isn't based on those offensive players any more than it is off the passing game, which is Horning and Otek, uh, Skimmerhorn and Newton, who are all four doing a really nice job of putting the ball right on top of uh, Bush's head so she can run the offense. Especially against a, a serving offense like Michigan, because Paige Jones has that top spin. I didn't feel like there were many opportunities for Paige Jones to take advantage of an out of system scheme. Is that, you know, was there a way that your team was able to prepare for a top spin? I remember a few years ago, the volunteer assistant had a top spin for you guys. Was there a way that you guys, you know, manipulated that? Yeah, we spent all week uh, passing serve off the machines. We have two. Um, serving machines that can deliver like jugs, uh, pitching machines, only they're for volleyball. And we had those babies humming all week, uh, serving that top spin serve. And if you're a good serve receiver and we have several, the top spin serve is not that tough of a serve. It, 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 normally it's going to go right in line with, with their approach and uh, doesn't move a lot left to right with a float serve. Uh, you have no control over what that's going to do. The server doesn't have great control over where, where it moves once you make that hand contact on the ball, where the top spin jump serve normally is going to continue to go in the, in the same flight that it's headed on. It's just a matter of you making sure the ball doesn't you know, go to the floor in front of you. You just got to move your feet, almost be more in a defensive position to some extent than uh, pass and serve receive. But we have not for a long time had a hard time with the top spin jump serve. And, and let's just hope that that continues because – uh, Northwestern uh, Emmy has a really good topspin serve. I don't know if it's any better than what Jones's is, but uh, they're two of the better topspin serves in the league. So your Boilermakers will take on an undefeated team that has only played two matches in Northwestern after their you know program went on a pause. Let's take it some time to talk about the bigger picture here in the Big Ten because it really feels like Minnesota and Wisconsin are separating themselves a little bit, but it should be a fantastic weekend with Nebraska really putting up a challenge this weekend. Not to mention that a team that you and I both mentioned in the, uh, in the preseason episode, Ohio State making a little bit of noise, 7-0 and currently, and the Buckeyes really provide trouble to Russ Rose and the Nittany Lions, a five-set reverse sweep on Wednesday night. And Ohio State has won three of the last four against Penn State in Columbus, all of them as unranked teams, all of them against top 10 Penn State. So we'll expect Ohio State probably to jump into the top 25 next week. And, uh, and it'll be interesting to keep an eye on whether the parity or the lack of parity continues in this conference. That was the first ranked team to lose to an unranked team here in 2021, Coach. Yeah, it's awfully early to – try to decipher all that. I, you know, we've known that Ohio State has tremendous talent. Jeff Carlston virtually recruited all those players that are there. Jeff, who um, left the program after last season. And now Jen Flynn Oldenburg is taking that group over and she's done a really nice job of 
of developing uh, cohesion and chemistry, but the talent is there. And last night's match, which I got a chance to watch a good part of, um, was Penn State dominating the first two sets. And then all of a sudden, um, Ohio State made, you know, made some adjustments or just started playing at a different level and really pretty much controlled a good part of the rest of the match. So it was a very nice win uh, for Ohio State. Keep in mind, Ohio State beat Penn State two years ago at home. Uh, in a match that nobody expected that to happen. So that's kind of a, a bit of a rivalry between those two schools. So emotion can take over a little bit, but I think it's early to determine right now, you know, where, you know, who's in the upper half, who's in the bottom half, you know, what's going to be an upset, what's not going to be an upset. I think that there's a lot of really good teams. As you know, all the great players in the country want to play in the big 10. So every, every team in this league has got, you know, players that can get the job done at, at a certain time. It's just, can you put all the pieces together? Uh, at the right time to, to really beat somebody uh, like, you know, our, we had chances against Minnesota. We didn't do it. So we didn't put all the pieces together. We were close, but we just didn't finish the job. Coach, you know, that's what broadcasters have to do. We've got to speculate preseason, midseason, early season, all that fun. And this weekend, Friday and Saturday, or excuse me, Friday and Sunday, Nebraska, Minnesota, four versus five, Big Ten Network, Friday following our match. That'll be at nine o'clock and then Sunday at noon, should be a, a good temperature taker on which Nebraska team came to play in 2021 and, and whether Minnesota continues to keep on rolling now that they're in the top five. But um, taking a look at, you know, the NCAA tournament as a whole, Coach, big news since the last time we talked, and I want to update all volleyball fans who haven't seen this. The entire tournament will be taking place in Omaha. Coach, you've been to, I'm sure, a ton of multi-match formulas, you know, all those AAU tournaments and different, you know, club style draws. Are you expecting there to be, you know, that situation where there's multiple matches going on at once and it's going to be kind of like a, a, a race to see how many matches that we can get done in a day, that kind of, that kind of style? Well, my guess, and I haven't gotten any clarification on that any more than what you have, they have access to the convention center there in Omaha, which is connected to the, the main venue where they'll play the, you know, the final four. And it's, it's huge. So you could very easily have four matches going on at the same time and, and maybe have them in different halls. So you could set each venue up similar to what you might see a high school gym or, you know, uh, a, a 1500 seat capacity facility and, and make it feel like, you know, it's, it's the only match going on at one time. And I hope that's what they do. I, I'd really be shocked if, if you could hear what was going on on one court, two, you know, two courts down like a club tournament. I think that they'll do a, a really good job of establishing um, high school, similar to high school facilities in one hall and then another hall. They might have another match, another hall, another one, because they are, they are going to play the whole thing right there. So um, it, it, it will be interesting. I like the concept. You know, it, it's really interesting that COVID may create some great opportunities for the sport of volleyball. Uh, I, I look at playing the two teams each weekend. Right now, I would vote to do it again because I think it alleviates tremendous amount of compression and stress off of your athletes and your coaches when you're not having to turn around and prepare for another top 20 team the next night that you're just making some changes and some adjustments and you're already on site. Um, so I, I like that. Um, you know, we'll see how this works. 
I don't think it's going to be great for spectators because in the NCAA tournament, normally you, you know, people will have a full house at the host site. And so I, I don't know that this is going to be something that will work for that, but there's been talk about trying to have more of a college world series environment for volleyball, go to a place every year, the same place every year. Um, the problem with going to Omaha uh, in December is it's freezing. And not every uh, spectator or coach that, that wants to attend the convention of the Final Four always wants to go where it's really, really cold. And that seems to be commonplace for us lately. Um, but anyway, I, I think some positives will come out of a, a really tough situation here with COVID. And we'll just have to continue to, to learn as we go through the season to figure out what works best for the sport of volleyball. So we got that announcement. And then a couple of days later, the NCAA came out telling us that instead of April 10th weekend for the first round and the second round of the tournament, typical the week after the regular season ends, it's going to start Tuesday, April 13th. The first round will just be that day. The second round will be on the 14th. And then the third round on the 17th, which is a Saturday and the elite eight on, you know, the 19th, the fourth round on the Monday, turn back around final four on the Thursday, the 22nd and the championship on the 24th. So coach, first thing that pops into my mind and I'm sure it popped into yours is the opportunity for some reschedulements right at the end of the season. Now that you have that extra week, or do you think, you know, selection Sunday will come right after the season ends anyway? Yeah. Selection Sunday will come right after, I believe, unless they've, they've, I haven't seen that they've changed that. So I think that that, that, additional time in between is just to give people the opportunity to make the arrangements to get where they need need to go that first night of ncaa tournament play will be 32 teams trying to get into a field of 32 if that makes sense there's going to be 16 teams with buys so the top 16 seeds are going to sit out there and wait to play on night number two if you do the math on it right and then the 30 32 teams are going to be playing to get into to that field so we're in the past the top 16 seeds got to host. Now their advantage is going to be they've got a first round bye. Okay. And so the other 32 teams, the, you know, mostly all at large teams and some conference champions are going to be fighting for the opportunity to, to get into the field of 32. And then it dwindles in half the rest of the way until you get to the final match. So again, that, you know, you got enough things to worry about right now, like winning matches and just getting into the field, but certainly it is, is going to benefit you to not play on the first night and then play somebody who just got done playing the night before and you were able to sit around and watch that match. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's exciting to talk about, as, as you mentioned, we're trying to bring, bring the fans as much information. That it was news to me, so that's, I'm happy you brought that up because now that we talk about the NCAA tournament, you might want to bring in a little bit of criteria because something that you've spoken about in previous episodes, it's 18 at-large teams instead of you know, the, the abundance that we may have seven big 10 teams. We may sometimes have eight or nine this season. Do you think it puts a little bit more pressure on matches like Purdue might have against Northwestern against non-conference teams, or is that in the back of everyone's mind? Well, I don't know if it puts pressure. It certainly makes every match important that you play. And like the two matches we played at Michigan showed that we probably should be seated ahead of Michigan. The two matches we played against Wisconsin and then the two matches against Minnesota probably showed the committee that they should be seated ahead of us if we both get get to that point. So um, anyway, that's you know, I think every match is going to dictate your success. 
And uh, Northwestern is a team that I think clearly right now believes they got a chance to make the NCAA tournament. I mean, this is their year. This is the year that Shane, Shane Davis has been waiting on. He's got a good group of seniors. He's got one of the best volleyball athletes in the country, um, a great, a great uh, bunch of athletes. So I think that they're going to be, um, you know, thinking that wins over Purdue are going to help them make, make the NCAA tournament. No doubt about it. And I, I do want to change the subject here as we, as we wrap up this episode, because I want to hear from the coaching perspective about the recruiting here in 2021. You know, you talked a lot about, and if you guys haven't listened to some of our 2020 episodes in the off season about how things are changing and how the recruiting was taking place, maybe during, you know, zoom or obviously no recruiting at all over dead periods. What have things been like here in the, in the middle of the season? Usually, you know, coach Jewel is flying around the country, trying to pick up different, you know, matches or tournaments or stuff like that. What is the recruiting status at, at the moment? Well, the NCAA just came out yesterday saying that they've pushed it back, I think, to May 31st. Um, I think that was the date. And again, the impact it has on us is it makes it difficult for us to truly identify talent. We're, we're trying to look into a video screen where it looks like the players are a football field away. And it, it, it really makes it difficult to identify even who the player is, yet alone, are they capable of, of playing at the Big Ten level? But that's the least of the concerns. The biggest issues are with these these athletes, and some are seniors in high school, some are juniors that haven't been um, able to make a decision yet, not to mention sophomores and on down the line that are really starting to get nervous. And with the other rule that came into play where players get an extra year, this is a, this is a, a redshirt year, it's a free year, that also eliminates some opportunities for those younger players to get scholarships because they're going to be backloaded. That, for example, if we have a junior uh, on our roster or two juniors or three juniors that we want to keep for a fifth year now that normally we weren't going to, but because this is a free year, that eliminates those opportunities for the kids in the current high school junior class. So it's been a real double whammy on, on the high school age students that have not committed uh, to receive a scholarship or at least to be able to go to a place and play. So I feel, I feel really badly for them. I don't know what the answer is. I, I think that the NCAA is trying to do what is right and not put, you know, a bunch of college coaches out there in the field, uh, watching matches in high school gyms and in club facilities and, and all those kinds of things. So I understand where they're coming from, but I also um, really feel poorly for these high school kids who are losing their minds right now and their parents because they're not having opportunities to visit campuses. They're not able to do anything except, as you mentioned, uh, if they're juniors right now or seniors, they can get on the phone or on a Zoom call with you, but you're just watching video. And it's really hard for a college coach to make offers based on what they saw on video and, and not have that person uh, have conversations with them face to face, get them on campus to visit and things like that. So it's a really, really tough time for uh, the recruits. And I'm hoping that we can get this corrected as soon as possible so that they can move forward. And I mean, I still think the majority of, of high school kids are gonna get what they want, um, providing they would have gotten it before. But there are going to be a certain percentage of scholarships that will not be available because this is gonna be a free year. You can just do the math on that. I don't know that people are gonna load up and have you know, two kids per year stay 
Uh, they might have one kid per year that's going to stay, but still that's one third of a recruiting class. So maybe 33% of high school kids in the upcoming couple of classes may not be getting full scholarships like they had hoped. Tough times. You know, you talk about the pros and the cons, a lot more cons, obviously, to, uh, to this, this wacky, you know, messed up year. But if you were to give advice to the parents of, of players in high school during, you know, this now the prolonged dead period, what would you, what would you say to them? Well, I think that everybody puts an incredible amount of emphasis on getting a scholarship. And I see kids all the time um, go someplace because they offered a scholarship and it's not the right choice. It's not the right school. It's not the right volleyball program. It's not the right location. It doesn't make sense. And I would continue to, to suggest that um, parents help their child get to the right school. Uh, whether that means maybe we're going to pay for a year, maybe we're going to pay for two years. I had four kids go through college, all right? And uh, we had one year of scholarship out of four kids that one of them spent a lot of time in college, by the way. And, um, and again, not everybody, you know, is, is designed to let that happen. We were not either when our college career started for our kids, uh, but we're still paying for it, to be honest with you. But I think that the key is just doing the right thing, uh, being patient, not pressing the panic button, because I, if great players, who are great people are going to still continue to be um, wanted by college coaches and college programs. And it, it just may take longer, but how the parent responds is going to have a big impact on how the student athlete responds. I, yeah, it's, it's, it's a good, it's a good point. And, and I'm happy that, um, that we spent a little bit of time talking about it. I do have a fun question here at the end, you know, the fifth set with Sean Dell and, and coach and I have not gone over this. So, you know, we'll see what he says, but I'd love to hear one or two fun stories from a couple of the road trips this season, coach, if you have anything good, <laughs> something to tell the fans and keep them, uh, keep them in tune with maybe some of the hijinks around, around the club. Well, the road trip to Wisconsin, I can tell you there was zero things that were fun. Um, we certainly played much better. I think some of the, the talks in the locker room um, were, were spicy up at Wisconsin. Um, and uh, we don't really get very spicy, but, you know, sometimes you got to stir the pot a little bit. And we, we did a little bit of that. But um, the trip to, to Ann Arbor, uh, was really our first bus trip of that distance that we've taken since I've been here with the exception of uh, them sending us to Missouri with, on the NCAA tournament. Missouri happens to be one mile within the maximum that you're uh, forced to drive to on a bus. And the Big Ten has done, or the NCAA did that to us twice where we had to make that really, really long bus trip before an NCAA tournament match. But this was the longest bus trip that we've taken and it was not that bad. What we found out was it really wasn't as bad as we thought. And uh, it was nice because our kids, for the very first time, were able to be together, even though they were all in the row by themselves, because that's part of the COVID uh, stipulation. But there was so much on the way back, so much camaraderie, fellowship, communication, laughing, storytelling, games being played. I, I just hadn't felt that in a long, long time on a bus trip. And uh, it was great, obviously, with the win, two wins over uh, Michigan, I thought, probably encouraged that uh, type of uh, uh, mentality. But I thought it was great because they haven't been able to spend much time together at all. And uh, this was an opportunity for a four-hour-plus trip back from Michigan after a really good win, two really good wins. 
to get to know each other because our our kids have not had those social experiences that you normally have at this point in time. Our freshmen are still trying to figure out, you know, where they fit in to this program because there just has not been the amount of interaction that we normally have. So, uh, I mean, that, that was, that was a good trip. We, the, the place we stayed up at in Ann Arbor was one of the graduate hotels. And, uh, this was the best experience that we've had at one of those. They did a great job for us, but again, everybody has their own room. Again, COVID stipulation, you have your own room and you can't go out of your room. You're supposed to stay in your room. So, you know, these, these guys are dealing in a different, different time and it's not all, um, you know, unicorns and rainbows. It's, uh, a lot of business take, taking place, and I'm sure they're on the phone quite a bit and talking to people, uh, FaceTiming, things like that. But um, we did have a really good trip up to Ann Arbor and back and uh, happy with those wins. And, and now, you know, tonight we move on to uh, – or here coming up, we move on to, to Northwestern, and we're looking forward to that. And then lastly, of these freshmen, who is the most talkative, the jokester, the most outgoing in the bunch? Well, I think that Savannah Chacon um, certainly has a, a very confident, outgoing um, personality. Molly Brown on the floor probably is as vocal as anybody we have. She, you know, when she's running her her her, her set, she she calls them loud and demands the ball. Uh, she's been a real treat. She she has helped change our environment for the better because she just outworks so many people. And you always want to bring in freshmen that are are going to be workaholics and. Um, set the, the tone for everybody else. I think Taylor and Lourdes are a little more soft-spoken, but yet uh, when they say something, people are going to, uh, to pay attention. Uh, as, as some people may know, Lourdes uh, it has been lost for the season. I mean, we, we know where she is. She's not lost, but uh, she did have um, a surgery that will prevent her from playing this season, but should have her back uh, 100% before our next season, which is, by the way, right around the corner. Uh, this is a unique situation where we're playing one season in the late winter and spring, and then we have summer, three months of summer to try to recover, and then bam, we're right back in it. And so it's important that we pace ourselves to some extent in our training uh, to make sure that we don't overdo it and, and have a bunch of kids that are burnt out by the time next fall gets here. All right, Coach. Thank you so much. Always love uh, picking your brain. All right, Daniel. Boiler up. Absolutely. He's Coach Shondell. I'm Daniel Gilman, and this is another episode of Dig City, a Purdue Volleyball Podcast.